Heiny, 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 heiny brothers coffee. Heiny, 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 heiny brothers coffee. Heiny, heiny. At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heiny Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hi everyone my name is mick sullivan and this is episode 22 of the past and the curious now every so often we get a request for a theme and since i do nearly everything for the podcast well it takes me a lot of time to get that completed but i got one completed and this is for lucy my good friend lucy isaacs who a long time ago said that she wanted to hear some stories about baseball now if you don't like baseball or you don't even like sports you're still going to love this episode it's got spies it's got a 17 year old girl with incredible courage and it also has a recording of Amber Estes Thieneman and myself performing Summertime. In this episode, you're going to hear the voices of Kelly Moore and Bailey Mazik, a new voice. Bailey is the curatorial specialist at the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory right here in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. It's a great place if you're a baseball fan. We're grateful and excited for her help as well as inspiration from PJ Shelley. It was 1931, and the official baseball season had not yet begun. At the very beginning of April, it was still the time of year when teams played exhibitions or unofficial games, and the New York Yankees were doing just that in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The people of Chattanooga didn't get to see the likes of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig very often, so when two of the greatest baseball players came to play a game, it was not to be missed. The Bronx Bombers, as they were nicknamed, had won the World Series in 27 and 28, and the two stars always seemed to be setting new records with their powerful Louisville Slugger baseball bats. No one, not even the local fans, really believed the minor league Chattanooga lookouts would pull out a victory against the Yankees, but it was certain to be a day to remember either way. There was talk of a new pitcher making a debut for the lookouts this game, and it happened sooner than people expected. You see, the starting pitcher, a man named Clyde Barfoot, gave up a single and a double to the first two hitters. With no outs in the first inning, the score was already 1-0. to zero. Never a good way to start a game. So the manager sent poor Clyde to the dugout and called for a relief pitcher to take his place pitching to the next batter, the man named Babe Ruth. Babe was a legend already by this time, and though he was towards the end of his career, he was still an incredible hitter. That season, he would go on to hit 46 home runs and 162 RBIs. If he got a hold of a pitch, 
he was likely to send it over the fence, and the Yankees would be up three to zip before the lookouts got their first out. So the new pitcher on the mound had to be careful. The first pitch came towards Ruth. Ball one. Then the second pitch. This time he liked what he saw, and he took a swing at it. Steve Reich won. Another pitch. Another swing. Another miss. Steve Reich two. When the fourth pitch came across the plate, Babe just stood there, apparently believing it was not a strike. The umpire obviously disagreed. Strike three, you're out. The hometown crowd cheered with exuberance for the debuting pitcher. The rookie on the mound was a young lady named Jackie Mitchell, no more than 17 years old. They couldn't believe it. She struck out Babe Ruth. And from several reports at the ballpark, neither could Babe Ruth himself. Jackie was just a young girl when her father had put a baseball in her hands and quickly she developed a love for the game, as well as basketball. Despite being relatively small, she was exceptionally coordinated, fast, and strong. So when a neighbor saw her throwing a baseball, he knew she was someone special. This was fortunate for Jackie, because this neighbor was future baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Dazzy Vance. Dazzy knew a thing or two about a fastball, as he led the National League, his division of the majors, in strikeouts seven seasons in a row. Dazzy spent time showing the teenage girl the finer points of throwing a baseball, and before long, she was throwing well enough to get the attention of the owner of the Chattanooga Lookouts. While a few women had tried, no woman had successfully and truly broken the barrier into a professional men's baseball league. Perhaps Jackie would be that person. Despite claims that this was a gimmick, her contract would indicate that she was considered a full part of the roster. Her mother was even planning to join her aboard the team bus when they went out for road games. When Jackie got word that she'd be pitching her first game against none other than the fearsome Yankees, she immediately took to the field for practice with great determination. And she overdid it. When game day arrived, she was laid up with a sore arm, according to the papers. Luckily, she would be saved by the rain, which delayed the game a day and gave her enough rest to spend a short amount of time on the mound. So there she stood, before a crowd of 4,000. You'd think you might feel a sense of relief after just striking out Babe Ruth, but Jackie did not have that luxury because batting after Babe was Lou Gehrig. Lou was younger than Babe and a star on the rise. He'd go on to hit just as many home runs as Babe that season and lead the majors in RBIs to boot. Now, though they were on the same team, there was definitely some competition between Lou and Babe. So, with Babe striking out, Lou really had a chance to stick it to him by getting a hit off of Jackie. But of course, Jackie would have the final say in that matter. She took a deep breath, looked towards the catcher's mitt, and readied herself to pitch. Curveball. Strike one. Curveball. Strike two. Curveball. Steve right three. And that was it. The crowd went wild. In seven pitches, young Jackie Mitchell struck out two of the greatest hitters in baseball history. When the next batter wound up on base, Jackie was pulled from the game and went to the dugout to rest her still sore arm, 
hearing the applause as she made her way from the mound. As expected, the Yankees would win by ten runs that day. Despite the loss, Jackie packed up her stuff and headed home, satisfied in her day's work. Oddly, though, the press were more interested in interviewing Ruth and Gehrig than the 17-year-old young lady who had struck them both out. As it would turn out, the league was not in favor of a woman being allowed to play in a men's baseball league, and she would not suit up for the lookouts again. She continued her career on a number of barnstorming teams, including one that is often described as the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. But Jackie didn't really care for the antics and tricks they performed for the sake of the audience, instead preferring to focus on pitching. By 1928, she had retired from baseball and joined the family business of selling lenses and eyeglasses. Now, we want to point out that many people have claimed that this notable event in 1931 was simply a stunt, and the teams had arranged for Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth to strike out. You can believe what you like, and there is evidence for both sides of the story. People believing it to be a stunt often point out that if it hadn't rained, Jackie was supposed to have pitched on April 1st, or April Fool's Day. Also, the lookout's owner often attracted attention by pulling stunts, like giving away a car at a game, bringing elephants to the field, even trading a player for a turkey. However, we would like to remind you that as good of a hitter as he was, Babe Ruth was also famous for the incredibly high number of strikeouts in his career. Additionally, he and Lou batted left-handed, which is hard to do against a left-handed pitcher like Jackie. It was also uncharacteristic of the Yankees' manager to have allowed such a thing to happen. No one on the team was looking to embarrass themselves under any circumstances. Eddie Kenna, the man catching Jackie's throws that day, had gotten to know her pretty well, and he was quoted as saying, I was impressed with Jackie's skills. She's twice as good as I'd imagined. Her signing with the lookout certainly isn't a joke as some people think. As for Jackie herself, there was never any doubt in her mind. Until the day she died in 1987, Jackie was certain that her curveball had stymied Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig fair and square, when she was just 17 no less. No stranger to the people of Chattanooga, Jackie did return to the mound one more time, throwing out the first pitch of the season in 1982 at the age of 68. It might be summertime, but also... It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's a summertime quiz. quiz Now, there is some disagreement about where the name June comes from, but July is named after Julius Caesar. Do you know who August is named after? August was named after one of Julius Caesar's nephews, Gaius Octavius Thurinus, but he was more commonly known as Augustus. Question number two. We can't think of summer without thinking of watermelons. Which of these edible plants is most closely related to the watermelon? Tomato, 
cucumber or grape? Watermelon originated in areas of Africa and it grows on a flowering vine, much like the cucumber. According to reports, none other than Pharaoh Tutankhamun or King Tut was actually buried with watermelon seeds. And the last question has to do with our baseball theme. How many stitches are on a baseball? There are 108 double stitches of waxed red thread on every single baseball used in the major leagues. Additionally, each game ball is rubbed with mud that comes from a secret location somewhere on the Delaware River. As you might know, players and coaches in a baseball game often use coded signals to communicate with their team. You've probably seen it. There are often hand gestures the catcher will flash, which the pitcher watches and understands. Or maybe the person getting ready to step into the batter's box will look to the coach near third base and see him touching both elbows, rubbing his stomach, scratching his head, or even sticking out his tongue. Mm. It's not a dance, and he's not teasing the batter. Unless that coach accidentally rolled through a patch of poison ivy the day before, those belly scratches are probably signals to the batter, giving him instruction on what to do next. Hopefully the other team doesn't understand the code, and the instructions remain a secret. It's really very similar to some aspects of being a spy and sharing information. Intelligence, as they call it, in secret. And there's one man in American history whose name is related to both of these things. Mo Berg was a baseball player and a spy. Long before he was a spy, though, he was a boy growing up in New York City with a brother, sister, and two parents. The Jewish family immigrated from the Ukraine in the late 1890s and owned a pharmacy first in Harlem and later in Newark, New Jersey. As he made his way through school, Mo quickly became known for two things. He was a really great athlete, and he was extraordinarily smart. He loved languages of all sorts and learned to speak several. And by the time he was in college, he dedicated his studies to understanding how many of those languages share common roots. He worked to understand Latin and Greek, Old English and Old French. This would help him learn other languages more quickly later in life. And he graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University. No big deal, right? Well, on top of this, while he was living his life, loving and learning the languages of long ago, he was leading the Princeton baseball team in some of the best seasons they've ever had. And that Latin came in handy on the baseball field, too. It turns out that a few of his brainier teammates also understood the dead language well enough to communicate. It was assumed that the opposing teams probably didn't have a linguist on the field to translate, so most team could call plays and communicate in Latin. No need for secret hand signals and belly rubs, this plan worked perfectly. 
Upon graduation, Moberg found himself drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers in what followed was a 15-year career that was one of the most unusual in professional baseball. The major leagues are for the cream of the crop. People who were the best in their college leagues soon found that the competition was much, much greater, and they were usually not the best around any longer. And Moberg played at a time that brought him into contact with the likes of Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, and other Hall of Famers. Moberg was nowhere near as good of an athlete as them. However, Mo quickly earned a reputation as the smartest man in baseball. Midway through his career, he decided he'd like to pursue a law degree, so he could fall back on a career as a lawyer when baseball came to an end. He informed his team at the time, the Chicago White Sox, that he'd be reporting late to spring training because he needed to wrap up his classes at New York's Columbia Law School. This was probably the only time in baseball history that a professional player pulled something like this. Throughout his career, Mo always seemed to be doing something unusual during the break between the season's end each fall and spring training. Some years, he'd travel by rail car across Asia or Europe. One year, he spent three weeks in a logging camp in the forests of Northeast America. His team loved that one because the constant work, heavy lifting, and axe swinging among the lumberjacks got him in great shape for the year ahead. Law school was about as far away from that as possible, and the team owner really preferred that Mo be at spring training, so he offered to raise his pay to convince him to join the team for training. No deal. Mo showed up late. Class was more important. Over the next few off-seasons, Mo would finish the law degree from Columbia University, which he could proudly hang on the wall next to his degree in linguistics from Princeton. Considering what a poor hitter Mo was, skipping spring training was a gutsy move. Even more so, stringing together 15 years in the big leagues was incredibly impressive. However, as he approached the end of his career, his attention along with everyone else's drifted overseas. America had become embroiled in an international affair. World War II was devastating Europe and America was teetering on the edge of getting involved. At this point in time, there was no CIA or Central Intelligence Agency for the government to rely upon in gathering intelligence on potential enemies. Instead, an agency called the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, was created to gather intelligence, which is a fancy way of saying spy. But rather than hire professionally trained spies, of which there weren't many in America, they worked regularly with private citizens. And Mo was perfect. He was strong, smart, and spoke all sorts of languages. So not long after walking off the baseball diamond, Mo found himself high above Eastern Europe, dangling from a parachute that ultimately landed him in Yugoslavia. His job was to learn what he could about the several resistance groups that were working against the Nazis, so America could identify which ones to send aid to. Later, though, he found himself in the belly of the beast. America was worried that the Germans would succeed in building a powerful bomb, and, according to records, Mo was tasked with sneaking into a meeting where some leading physicists were to speak. Through deception, observation, and his German language skills, the former baseball player was asked to learn what he could of their progress. Luckily, they hadn't made much, because if they had, Mo had also been asked to put a stop to it. 
by any means necessary. When the war ended, the OSS folded and eventually gave way to the CIA. Mo Berg was no longer needed nor desired. He had a reputation of being kind of difficult to work with. But his bravery and brainery stood out, making him both one of the most unusual baseball players and spies in history. And certainly the most unusual baseball playing spy. Or the only one, as far as we know. For listening to episode 22 of the past and the curious everybody go find us on social media if that's your thing or give us money on patreon if that's your thing subscribe to us on itunes or your preferred platform if that's your thing maybe give us a review if that's your thing or just sit there and enjoy the show if that's your thing also check out kids listen 
Find out more about us at thepastandthecurious.com. We'll see you all, or talk to you, down the road. <laughs>